today we conclude a series that we started back in, in the first of the month together called Marriage Busters, looking at things that sabotage the relationships that matter most and trying how to avoid them. And uh, next week, I start a new series called Seven Days. And uh, all the way through now through Easter, through March, up until Easter, we're going to be looking at the last seven days in the life of Christ. How many of you know that the majority, or not majority, but a large portion of the Gospels is, don't, is designated to the last week in the life of Christ. That's pretty amazing. Uh, Matthew chapters 20 through 28, there's 28 chapters, eight of them, none of them actually, none of them are about that last week. That's pretty significant. That's a big chunk of it. Uh, 33 years, and we get one week in, in nine chapters. And you go on through Mark, Luke, and John, it's a very similar type thing there. So we're going to do that last week in the life of Christ. Next week, I'm going to bring a sermon to you that talks about what do we do when things don't turn out the way we anticipated. Anybody ever have that happen in your life? It's just an easy, quick step. Boom, boom, we're there. And then all of a sudden, you go, boom. There's not a second boom. We're not there now. How do we make this work? Anybody ever face disappointment in life where things didn't work out the way you hoped and you, you prayed even and planned for? Well, next week we're going to look at that as we look at the triumphal entry, Jesus coming into Jerusalem and what goes on there. And we'll be looking at that final week uh, for the next six weeks or so, something like that. And I'm interested to see what kind of music they put with the sermon bumper for that one. This one here was was, uh, I guess that was love music. I don't know what that was, but uh, uh, love younger generation people who think so creatively. Amen. <laughs> Dig yourself out of this hole, Pastor Bruce, because you're, you're in the hole. Good job. I do, I'll say it this way. I love all of our media team and the people that put things on the screen and things together in the video and all the stuff they do. And if you think they don't do a very good job, well, get over it, okay? I started to say volunteer and you can help them, but we don't want you volunteering if that's your attitude. Um, they work so hard to get everything just right. And the, the deal with all the video and the, the audio and the things that go on, anything less than perfection is easily visible. How would you like it if people looked at your life that way? Anything less than perfection, oh, you blew it. You know, I, I've heard people say silly things of condemning folks that are helping them. And I just want to say publicly, I love sound people, video people, all the tech folks that put all this stuff together. They do an incredible job. So, so back at the start of the month, we looked at selfishness and how that when we are selfish, it sabotages our marriage. And one of the things I told you there, I'll come back to this at the end again. It's not in your notes, but I'll give it to you and ask you to write it down. One of the keys to, to having a strong marriage is that you create happiness instead of seeking happiness. In other words, going, well, what's going to happen for me? What's, where's my role in this thing? You try to create happiness for your spouse. And the good news is, if you're both doing that, there's a whole lot of joy and happiness in your house. Selfishness will destroy that. Then a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, I guess it was, we looked there, two weeks ago, at isolation and the fact that God created us, that we are to be together, that we are to be in sync, we are to be united together and not isolated. The devil tries to bring isolation, but God brings unity. 
Last week, we looked at dishonesty and how that God wants us to push away from that and instead pursue truth. Today, I want to look at another problem that, that causes marriages to falter, and it's the topic of anger. Colossians 3, 18 and 19 says, Wives, submit yourselves to the husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward or with them. Now, here's what is a common tendency of, of Christians is we love to take phrases from the Bible and kind of isolate them in a way that really serve us well. Rather than reading the whole chapter or the whole book, we like to pull them out. In this place right here that we're reading, it's also in Ephesians, we see this same thing in chapter 5, and we see it uh, later on in, in some things that Paul writes uh, to Timothy, and we, some of Peter's writing talks about husbands and wives a little bit. It's amazing how that, that if there is a dominant male in the house, they will amen strongly at that wives submit to your husbands, as if that's an independent clause that's built all by itself. Very clearly, every time Paul says something like that, he immediately follows it up with, and husbands, love your wives. And he is not ever trying to separate those from one another. They are united together, and they, they form a union, a partnership that is God-ordained. There's not one that is lesser. There's not one that's inferior it's this coming together. There is differences. Thank God. I'm just going to be a little bit old-fashioned here probably, but I will not apologize for a moment. I'm glad that women are different than men. And I appreciate that. I'm glad that God made us unique. And, and, and by the way, if you've been around me long, if you've been close to me very long at all, you'll know this is to be this to be true. I absolutely detest. Is that a strong enough word for you? Labeling that makes everybody to be identical because of one trait that they share. Are you kidding me? You know. So, so the, let me just go here for a second, just to make sure you understand this. So not all women are identical. Not all men are identical. There's variation within that. There is, there is commonality, but there's also uniqueness. Thank God for uniqueness. If, you were, if there was no uniqueness in the world, this would be the most boring thing in the world I can think of right now, looking at all of you who are all identical, and it would, I would, I would be, a, be very easy to aim a, a sermon that I think would hit everybody if you were all identical. First of all, I don't aim sermons anyway. I look at the Word of God and try to figure out what it's saying to us. But I'm glad that God has the way of making it applicable to every individual person. Can somebody say amen? amen. You know, so we, you got all the generational things and Generation Z and Y and, and uh, Alpha, Beta Kappa, I don't, whatever they are. They're all out there. <laughs> Boomers and busters and builders and you got all, all this. I, I've studied it. I understand it. But here's the problem. They want to say that everybody that's within 15 years of my birth, that these are the characteristics that define all of us. We're all like this. There's some general truth to that because of shared experiences. 
but it's incredibly minimal. You don't believe it? Go back in your mind to when you were a senior in high school. Everyone in your senior class was all identical, thought the same way, liked the same things, dressed the same way. Are you kidding me? Unless you went to a school that had three people in the graduating class. There was much diversity. Now, I won't take time to dive into this too deep, but I remember when I was in high school, senior year of school, there were some major groups and subgroups within those groups. You had the jocks, you had the, the music people, you had the, the science people, you, you had the party people. You had all these different groups, and they weren't anything alike sometimes. Sometimes they were diametrically opposed to each other even. Even to go further than that, you could find somebody that was born the same year as you, on the same month as you, on the same day as you, and there's no guarantee that you're going to share the same views of life. So I think first of all, I, I know I'm creeping men and women a little bit here, but I want to be careful to say that within that boundary, there's a whole lot of personal expression which is healthy and good. Does that make sense? But the general rule is this, and can, can I take Paul's two statements and, and turn them into one for you real quick and just make it real simple? Work together. Support each other. Love each other. We've allowed, see, most of the time the enemy, in my opinion, brings all this grouping stuff in and puts us in different groups. And even in the church world, and you know, we're this group and you're that group, and our group's better than your group because we got this revelation that you don't have, and you should be more like. And we get, even in the church, we get all this stuff going on of grouping and division. See, in my, in my understanding of scripture, very clearly, one of the ultimate goals of the devil is to bring division into life, one of the ultimate goals of God is to bring unity. That is clearly seen and exemplified in marriage. None of that was really in my notes, but it's pretty good stuff, just to be honest with you there. Paul says, wives, submit your husbands. This thing of the Lord, husband, loves your wives, and don't be bitter toward or with them. Now, depending on what version of the Bible you have, you may see the word harsh there. Uh, you may see a little bit of a different phrasing there. I go back and try to look at it in the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I use Greek tools to help me understand phrasing and terminology. And... Greek language, Hebrew even more so, but Greek language has a few, fewer words than we use, and a lot of times there's an implication of something, uh, and in English, often we add in words that may or may not be accurate. They're not going to change the meaning of the thing overall, but they may create a little different nuance there, and this is one of those places where it says, husbands, love your, wife, love your wives, and don't be bitter toward them. There aren't as many words in the Greek language there, and... Um, Basically, it says, love your wives, and it's like no bitter together. No bitterness together is kind of what's, what's implied there. That's my wording of it. And when you read that word bitter in the classical Greek language, it speaks of disappointment, hate, and anger, according to the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. It takes root when you focus on the sins or shortcomings of your spouse or another person and behind it is the disappointment of unmet expectations. It's expressed by embittered anger, vindictiveness, or being cross or harsh. How many of you know that anger often can lead to a root of bitterness? 
The two are so clearly connected that anger that is unresolved results in a bitter attitude. How do we not become bitter or how do we not make our spouse bitter? How do we prevent making people around us bitter? I think there's three things, and this isn't in your notes, but just for you to to be aware of. One is we lead by love and not harsh authority. Let Let me put it in the role of a pastor. A pastor who leads his congregation with an iron fist, and I've seen some through the years, and, you know, I am the pastor and do what I say or else, and, you know, get me the first plate of food at the church dinner. How dare you get in my way? Respect me. They bring all kind of division into the church. They create all kind of problems. Because when you lead with harshness, it is not, it's not really love at that point. You don't lead with harsh authority or by demanding you lead with love. You lead your spouse with love, men and women. You lead, your, you lead your children with love, not by a harsh dictate. Now, as a parent, was there ever a time when I had to tell one of my kids, listen, stop now. That's not going to happen in this house. Occasionally, but it was rare. How many of you know that the mom that yells at the kid in the grocery cart, the toddler, creates a monster? I'm, I, let me clarify. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that lady that's yelling on every row. And that's the continual default. Basically, I'm going to say this, that the action or the reaction that that we have, the the response that we have to a situation should match the severity of the problem. Don't go ballistic over something that is minor. If you heard that and you struggle with that and you'll believe that and try to process that, I just brought major freedom into your life. You know why kids rebel? Because nobody likes being beat down all the time. And if that's the path you're taking, that's not the right path. Is there a time for authority? Yes. Is there a time for a pastor to have authority in the congregation? Yes. But it's not thrown around every day and not for selfish reasons. Lead with love. The second thing, controlling uh, your anger and dealing with hurts in a godly way prevents bitterness. When we learn how to control it, we learn how, I'm going to talk about it in a minute, to disarm it, that's a good thing. A third thing, set a positive emotional climate in your home. That's how we prevent bitterness from creeping in. Now, once you go to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to read a little bit of scripture here for you, and just listen carefully as I read the word of God to you this morning. Out of the NIV, it says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, Paul's going to talk about their actions in a minute, but he says, first of all, wrong thinking results in wrong actions. As a man thinks, what's the rest of it? So is he. Your thinking affects your actions. Paul says, do not be like Gentiles. Don't live in that path anymore. 
in the futility of their thinking, the, 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 the emptiness of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. I'm not going to take time to dissect that deeply, but, but I want to hit it real quick. Paul says, because they have chosen to ignore and live in darkness, they've hardened their hearts. The result of this is this, this spiraling uh, path of destruction. They've lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality. Interesting contrast of the words there. They're not sensitive, but they are sensual. They're not alert, they're not aware, but they're driven by their senses so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. Now, Paul goes into an illustration here. Paul... Paul followed the, the example of Jesus in, in preaching, teaching, writing, of using examples to make that which is, is uh, abstract, concrete. So he says, he uses this illustration, he says, think of what I'm telling you now, and here's the words right here, as taking off dirty clothes and putting on fresh clothes. He says, you were taught to put off, take off the dirty clothes, put them out, get them clean, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on, so get rid of the dirty clothes. Now put on fresh clothes, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That is what we should be wearing. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now, this next phrase is translated different ways. Now, go back to the Greek to get what I thought was the, the best wording for it or whatever. Some see the phrase in English that is in this phrase for some versions, several versions, that says, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry and sin not. And some people wrongly assume, because you go back to Greek, it's not there that, this way at all. That is not a command. It is a, 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 a an awareness. It is an acknowledgement. The, the word that's there in the Greek language is og, uh, orge. And orge means to be in a state of anger. It's an acknowledgement of anger. It is not a command to be angry. If it were a command to be angry, it would be an absolute contradiction to many other parts of Scripture. When it says be angry and sin not, it's saying when you are angry, don't sin. It's not telling you to be angry. Go out and find something to be mad about and get mad. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is acknowledging that all of us in this room, even though we want to walk in the Spirit, we still live physically in the flesh, and we're prone to fleshly responses. Anger does not have to be taught. It comes easy for most of us. It shows up at an early age. So Paul is not saying here, hey, go find something to be mad about. Now, now he, he will tell us that anger is acknowledged as a reality of life, and he's not condemning us over that. He's not saying, you know, that, 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 that anger itself, and anger, by the way, is normally a secondary 
emotion. We heard that a couple of weeks ago at our marriage retreat. It's caused by something else that causes anger to rise up. And anger also is not a problem within itself, but it's often what anger causes us to do. So anger is caused, first of all, because of some other source, because I'm hurt, because uh, I feel misunderstood, because uh, something was done that I did not agree with. Uh, and, and by the way, and I'll get to this in a minute, I'm not even saying all those things are bad or evil. There's sometimes that, that, that there's justification for it. Sometimes you have been wronged, and, and there is going to be a response of anger. Um, but you have to know how to deal with that anger, how to disarm it so it doesn't blow you up. That's the whole key right there. When, when and I don't know where you're at on this, but I'm very sincere in my comment right now. This isn't tongue-in-cheek trying to be funny, which I do frequently, so it'd be easy for you to miss it. So I'm telling you this is truth, not a little kind of humorous take right here. When I see someone driving reckless on the roads, my anger is not doesn't rise up because of they cut me off. The anger that I feel in that moment right there is, and, and here's what I often think. If you want to judge me harshly, that's your option right now. But I often think, I wish there was a cop around right now to pull them over, to slow them down, to keep them from killing someone on down the road or at another day in their life because they're driving out of control. Um... By the way, following that line of thought, if you get pulled over by a policeman for operating your vehicle improperly, you should thank God that they just gave you a warning to be more careful in the way that you drive. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. It's not our first response, but we probably should be more careful because we all feel like somehow... When we're behind the wheel of a car, there's a typical feeling that comes over most of us, or we're going to get in a car and drive. It's, it goes back to being 16 and invincible. I am in control of my car, and nothing can hurt me. Nothing can happen to me. I am a good driver. I've done this before. Let me just real quick. This is off topic, but it, it, it'll help right now. Just make this point. How many of you, I want you, you're going to raise your hands, okay, if this is you, if you fit in this category. How many of you in the room think you are an above average driver, hands super high in the air, real high? Okay, so some of you are either lying right now, and I'm going to make you prove that. How many of you think you're a worse than average driver? Raise your hand. Everybody look at who not to park next to in the parking lot. See, see, very few people are going to go, I'm below average. But just talking mathematically, not, not trying to pick people out, half of you are below average. Because average is 50 and then you're, half, you're below. We all think somehow we're invincible, but the reality is we need to not make sure that our anger is not one that is destructive, but one that either helps us or helps someone else. And I'll process that in a little bit and I won't cover everything today, but, but, but we'll get there. He goes on to say, um, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands so that he may have something to share with those indeed. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And by the way, when he says unwholesome talk, he talks about what it is by contrast wholesome talk is that which helps build other people up. And how does it do it? According to their need. 
It is sensitive. There's that word again. It is sensitive. That it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. I won't take time to go into what those different words mean, but they can all be summarized to mean an attitude, spirit, and activity connected to anger. Bitterness, I mentioned earlier, is what happens when anger is unresolved. Uh, rage is anger at its, at its biggest point. Brawling is anger in action. Slander is anger in speech. Be kind, compassionate, one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ. God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved you, loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So I've already hit some of this real quick, but anger in Scripture is viewed as being potentially highly destructive. As a matter of fact, the Bible repeatedly commands us to put away anger. Colossians 3.18, uh, Ephesians 4.31, Psalm 37.8. Psalm 37.8 says, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. The psalmist in Psalm 37 says, negative attitudes bring evil results whether that's anger or whether it's all the way blown up to wrath or whether it is in, in worry or anxiety, those things lead to, eagle, to, to evil. The Bible does not encourage anger but recognize its inevitability, and I'll talk about that more in just a moment. The first recorded sin after the fall was triggered by anger, right? Cain and Abel are, are, are there together. Cain is hurt, upset, mad, because his sacrifice did not get accepted because he brought the leftovers, whereas Abel brought the first portion. It had to do more with the attitude of the heart than the, than the thing that was given. One operated with purity. One operated uh, with deceit. But the result of that is, the Bible says very clearly, Cain became angry. And in his anger, he killed his brother, Anger leads to destructive tendencies. As a matter of fact, Jesus alludes to that and speaks of it actually very clearly, not just alludes, but speaks to it. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he says, you've heard, do not murder, but I tell you that if you have looked at your, your neighbor with anger, then there's a problem. In Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21, Paul lists the works of the flesh and just a few verses later compared to the fruit of the Spirit. And almost half of those 17 actions that are given there all result from anger. Anger is a big issue in marriages. It's a big issue at the workplace. It's a big issue in homes. It's a big issue in churches, in communities, in countries. And if it's not handled accurately, it will bring destruction. Anger in a marriage will result in bitterness at the least and often ultimately in destruction. Let me help you out with this. We are all growing. If I did this kind of stuff, this would be the spot where I'd say, turn to your neighbor and say, I'm growing. But I don't have y'all do that, but just know it. We're all growing. We're all growing. 
you're growing in some capacity, one way or the other. Some people grow up, some people grow old. We're growing in one direction or another. That's not an option. That's the path of life. It is continually a path of growing. Now, the question is, how are you growing? Which direction are you growing? And if you're not growing in love, you are growing in bitterness. Some people think like there's this magical point in life when you turn a certain age or you have a certain experience and then boom, after that, everything just falls into place. We all thought that when, when we were considered, um, well, before we, depending on, so start to say something doesn't apply today as much, so I'm going to speak it out here. When I was growing up, when you turned 16, you got your license that day. That was just kind of the rite of passage. I mean, it's what we did. And if your birthday was on a Saturday or Sunday, you had to wait till Monday, and it was just horrible having to wait. But you had to get your license because that was your expression of freedom in life. I can now drive a car. I'm a man. Now people aren't doing that as much, but it's, a, it's whatever works for you. But then, then you're going to turn, turn 21, and now I'm an adult. I'm legally an adult. This is going to change everything. How many of you went to bed being 20, woke up being 21, and realized nothing significant happened through the night? And you think that at some point in age, it's just going to all click into place, and you're going to become mature, and you're going to become wise. See, see, can I tell you this? Young fools are growing to become old fools. Young, angry people are growing to become old, bitter people. It's reality of life. You you choose the path you're going to be on, but you can't change the outcome. If I go out here and go to Interstate 44 West, I'm headed to Oklahoma City, whether I like it or not. I can choose the road I'm on, but I can't make that road take me to somewhere where it doesn't go. And so often people are like, well, I'm just holding on. I was wronged back in 97. That doesn't seem that long ago for some of us, but some of the people weren't even born in 97. They're in this room right now. Therefore, I have every right to be mad. You don't know what they did to me. You can either get over it or get bitter. It's that simple. And when we foster this spirit of, of anger, it brings bitterness, it brings destruction. So let's look two things today quickly, how to disarm your anger and how to resolve the conflict. So just for your point of relaxing, I can do these next two points really quick. The intro was the big part, so don't worry about where we're at. And we're going to have prayer at the end and ask God to help all of us to grow in love and to resist anger. Number one, learn how to disarm anger free, uh, effectively. How do you process anger is the question. Do you suppress it? Not good. In other words, anger, oh, I'm not mad. Who, me, not mad. I just won't talk to anybody. I'll sullen up and just kind of sit here in my corner. No, I'm not mad. Okay, that's not going to resolve the conflict. Some people, they say, well, I'll just, uh, I'll just avoid it. I'll just stay away from anything that, that is my hot button. And that, that may be a little bit of a simple point, but it doesn't work very long because you can't control how problems come at you. <laughs> Some people, so suppressors, they're the ones that get quiet. Magnifiers, they're the ones that get loud about it. They vent. 
Let me tell you why I'm mad. Let me tell you, here's the 17 things that she did to me. And here's why. And I'm right, and I'm justified, and I'm going to let the world know. Let me, get, let me let you on a real good, good tip right here for life. Whenever you are angry, this, replies, this applies in marriage specifically. Whenever you're angry at your spouse, please, please, please don't, please don't go tell all your friends. Because here's what will happen. You'll get it worked out. Your friends are going to stay mad. That's the truth. Because they weren't there for the resolution. They just heard, they, they heard what happened in the first inning of the ball game. And they're hanging on to that story right there. And even if you come back later and say, hey, we got it all worked out. Well, I'm still mad. If you're mad at someone, talk to them about it. If you need help, get a counselor involved. By the way, reminding you again, if you need marriage counseling, we do that to a certain level. We never want you to tell us anything that will cause you to be embarrassed by being around us later and stop coming to church here. I know that sounds crazy, but I've seen it happen. People say to me, thank you, Pastor. You helped me so much, but now we're looking for a new church since you know everything of our dirty laundry. Okay, I, I have a really good forgetter, selectively forgetting. And when I'm counseling with people, I can tell you, I, I won't remember the details of what we talked about two days later. Something has to come up big to trigger that back in my mind because I have just kind of intentionally made this decision. I'm not going to think on that, dwell on that, try to tell that. I'm not telling anybody else about it. And we're just going to let that end once we, we've talked about it. But... Some people have trouble because they go, you know all this stuff about me now, and I feel bad coming back. We want to send you, at our expense, if you're part of our church family, to a professional counselor. If you need financial assistance, we'll help you. If your insurance covers it, that's great. If you can afford it, that's fine. But we're going to help you get there and get counseling because we believe in your marriage. We want your marriage to be right. Are you glad for a church that believes in you and wants to invest in your marriage? Say amen. And all you have to do is go online again, and there's uh, at awasofirst.com backslash forms. There's a site right there. It'll take you right to that form. Pastor RJ deals with that. I don't deal with it. He may tell me about it if I need to know about it, but there's not this absolute. He's got to debrief me on who's getting counseling. I, I, I don't mean this wrong. I don't care. I care about you, but I don't care about that. And so if you're doing that and it's helping you, praise God. What I care about is the end result, you getting strong, healthy in your marriage or in your personal life or whatever it is you need. And by the way, a lot of times, a lot of us need to have somebody help us through a difficult moment of life. The right way to process is examine it. Why am I angry? What did this trigger in me? What can I learn from this? Is my anger, is my anger, is it, is it accurate or is it inaccurate? Is it something that I truly was hurt or is it something that I had a trigger reaction to a previous experience? Why am I angry? What's going, what's going on there? Second thing, how, question, how do you process? I mean, don't deny your anger. Grow through it. So in other words, do that examination part. See why you're angry, how you can get better, how you can get stronger. Express your needs to your spouse, to your friend, to your coworker. Um, by the way, the, the, the closer they are to you, the more you should tell them, the more removed they are for you. Reader's Digest version works real well. 
If it's a coworker, you don't need to take three hours to explain to them the history of your life. You take three minutes to tell them why something bothered you or made you upset. Okay, this is going to be like a real throw-off for some of you, but it's what you need to do if you're in that situation. If it's a coworker and they've done something that angered you, you need to go to them and say, hey, I was angry because of this, and here's from the background, blah, 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 blah. And I just want you to know that I'm sorry for getting angry. You go, I'm not saying that. Okay, just sit there and get bitter then. Because you're growing somewhere. And if you wrap your arms around anger and hold on to it like it's your right, you will become a bitter person. I don't need to qualify that statement. I don't need to kind of tone that one down. That is an absolute truth. You've got to let things go. And I'll get back to that in just a minute in closing here. But, but you've got to go through the process. Don't justify your sin because you're angry. Now, now why not use the word sin there? Because that's the word that, that Paul talks about there. When he talks about uh, the, the, the fact of us having anger in our life um, in, in verse 20, 26 and 27... Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. In other words, uh, and then he goes on in the first part, in your, in your anger, do not sin. He's saying that there is a real possibility of your anger leading to a sinful position. Isn't it amazing? It's pretty much universal. When we get angry, how quick it is for our imagination to go bananas. I'm mad because Pastor Michael got the last cup of coffee, and I wanted a cup of coffee, and he didn't even ask me. And then our imagination kicks in. And as a matter of fact, I bet he saw that I was walking toward the coffee thing, and he didn't even want coffee, but he probably took it because he knew I wanted it, and he's probably getting ready to go back in the back office and talk to RJ about it now, and they're going to laugh about how he got the last cup of coffee, and I didn't get the coffee, and I know he did that to me on purpose. Whoa, deep breath. He just got a cup of coffee. Now, if I want to be angry and mad, I guess it's really trivial, but I can be. He got the last cup of coffee, and I didn't get any. But once they go on down that whole line of all this imagination stuff kicking in, guess what I'm doing? I'm moving towards sin. Because now my anger becomes hatred. And so now, I'm just being honest. Some of you have been there. Some of you may be there now. Because I'm angry because he got the last cup of coffee. How dumb, how stupid, but I'm angry about that. Now I get mad. Now, now check this out. Let's be honest. Here's what winds up happening. I start kind of just hoping something bad will happen to him. And then I go, vengeance is the Lord's. Repay him, oh God. He got the last cup of coffee. Now I'm doing this very uh, cartoonish intentionally to make it something you can grab a hold of and understand and see. But how wrong, how sinful would it be for me now to start saying, well, I hope somebody steals something from his home or something bad happens to him and it'll be, it'll be God extracting vengeance if he does because he got my cup of coffee. See, anger leads you down a path that if not controlled, 
Anger is not sin. Being angry is not a sin. Please hear that carefully. But embracing anger is. And it leads to wrong attitudes. If I'm angry, my goal, and I'm going to get here in just a second, but should be to reconcile the anger and how do I get it solved? Don't let anger take root in your heart. Don't cooperate with the devil. God's plan is restoration. Can somebody say amen? amen. How many of you have had your life restored by God? Say amen. amen. I, I, I want to, just a few weeks ago, just real quick. How many of you have you had your life radically restored by God? Just shout amen. amen. That's so awesome. God focuses on restoration, but the devil's plan is ruin. God is a builder. The devil's a destroyer. Cooperate with God, not the devil. Disarm anger effectively. Secondly, resolve conflict quickly. Paul says here, and I really do think it's probably more of a, a, a general principle than an absolute command, but he's, here's the principle of this. The, the statement is, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Um, without going into a lot of detail and whatever, Jan and I have a great marriage. We have a normal marriage. We do have an occasion where we are upset with each other. Um, it normally happens in the car for some reason. <laughs> Only God knows why. <laughs> Could be the way she laughs like that. That may be part of it. So, so anger, anger is a part of life. And, and there have been times where we've been angry. And normally you go back and you go, what's the real point of the issue here? It's normally not that big of a point, but it just it gets that blows up, 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 up until it becomes something. And you, you Hatfield and McCoy's, you become mad about something you don't know what you're mad about. Um, there have been times where probably I have gone to sleep and I haven't been just super happy about life or marriage or whatever at that moment. And I don't think that was a major sin on my part. It was like it was 2.30 in the morning. And at 2.30 in the morning, we're not doing a good job of communicating. So let's go to sleep and let's talk about it in the morning. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Pushing it off for weeks, months, years, avoiding it altogether. That's more the concept here. What Paul is teaching us is deal with conflict quickly. Now, here's some keys to, to dealing that conflict in a good manner. Number one, approach the issue in a loving and positive manner. Remember the goal is improvement, not proving that you're right. Can I get a witness? Number two, deal with the issue. Acknowledge the problem, but don't pass judgment. Uh, some of this material, one of the sources that, that, that helped me come up with some of this this week and kind of the outline of this part this guy named Jimmy Evans, and he does a lot on marriage. And when he's talking about this, his words are this. I don't particularly like his words, just to be honest. But sometimes it's hard to get the right word. He says, it's okay to complain, but not to criticize. Now, you've got to define the words clearly. Some of you will identify with that real quick, because that's the wording you would use. I don't use complaint normally with the positive environment. Um, but the way he's talking about it is addressing the real issue. Here is the problem we need to fix. Criticizing is when you begin to attack the person. I agree with that concept. I just would say acknowledge there's a problem rather than complain about it. 
Acknowledge the problem, deal with the problem accurately, but don't criticize the person. Don't, don't beat them up. Don't make it personal. Only personal in the sense where we all need to grow. We all need to improve. How many of you would agree this morning, you need to improve in your life? Okay, what that means is you're not doing everything perfect. So don't expect everybody else to be perfect. Keep growing together. Number three, listen to your spouse and develop transparent trust. James 1, 19. Great, great verse. 19 through 21. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to, what does it say? Listen. Quick to listen. Get your ears open. Typically, we're planning our response before they finish their statement. And we're not listening and processing. We're listening only to plan our rebuttal. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Ah, hold your rebuttal. Let me think about what you just said. Then move on to the next. So often we get like 14 points all coming up at the same time because we're quick to speak and slow to listen. And the last one, and slow to become angry. James says anger is an issue we need to deal with. And he goes on to say this, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Wow. Number four, forgive each other just as God in Christ forgave you. You all know this, but when Paul wrote uh, this book to the Ephesians, he didn't start chapter 1, verse 1, and start writing verse 2, verse 3. You know what? That, that came into being, I think, around the 1500s, if I remember right. Um, it, when printing started becoming a real thing, and people, everybody had their own copy of the Bible. And the reason they put chapters and verses in there is so that when I get up today, if you had a Bible with you, and, and we're going to a place in life where that will no longer be necessary because... With digital, you can find things different and quicker anyway. But if you have real hard Bible, the, 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 the physical Bible in front of you, one like this one, and, I, and you say, turn in your Bible to, if I didn't have chapter and verse, it'd take you forever to find where, to, where I was talking about. I've got a little past that, a little more there. So now I can go to turn to chapter 4, verse 26, and you can find it quickly. But, when, I'm saying that so you understand this, when Paul wrote Ephesians, he didn't stop with chapter 4 and take a night's rest and then start up with 5 the next day. It's all written with one continual thing. So it's good to have the chapters and verses there, but don't let them dictate what you think one means or where it stops and where it starts, because the whole letter flows together. I wouldn't like anybody taking my letter and dissecting it with chapters and verses. Can anybody agree with that? You got to read the whole thing. And so... Chapter 4 doesn't end with 4, but it flows into 5, and that's why I put it in your notes that way. At the end of 4, he says, forgive, and at the beginning of 5, he says, love as Christ loved us. Understand that love is marked by commitment, self-sacrifice, and encouragement for godly pursuit. As I conclude the sermon today, I want to give you this from 1 Corinthians 13. I told you this at the start. I'll come back to it briefly just as a, an awareness so that you know I haven't forgotten what I told you. There's four different Greek words for love. The one that's talked about here is agape love. And what Paul says about love that we have for each other in the body of Christ would apply here. But I would suggest this, that the romantic love, eros love, should be founded in agape love. 
Eros love that does not have agape as its foundation is love that's based on circumstance or feeling, and it is enormously fickle. See, when you agape love someone, you don't even get the option to come in and say, well, I just don't feel in love anymore. I'm not trying to make too light of that. If you don't have the right feelings, you need to get counseling and get help to regain feelings. Feelings aren't bad, but they're not the foundation of our love. Commitment is. So if, if, if I don't have it, I need to try to get it back. Not use that, as a, and it, use that as an excuse for moving on. Love is patient. Love is kind. Notice there's a lot of do nots here. Love does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't say, you remember like three months ago when you did whatever? You remember last summer and you said this to me? And you remember four years ago? Stop. Don't do that. Let's go from this day forward. Now, if there are issues that need to be dealt with because they've been buried forever and they now got brought to the surface, go see a counselor and work through it. But do it in a productive way, not destructive. How many of you want to be productive, not destructive? Say amen. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always persevere. Love never fails. If you want to have a great marriage, three things, two word statements. I boil them down as simple as I can. Here they are. Write them down at the bottom of your paper. I think there's room there. Three keys to a great marriage. They go back to this whole series. Number one, pray together. Pray together. Pray words of blessing and encouragement over each other throughout the day, but, but let them know that you are praying for them, for God to bless them and thanking God for them. I got, a, I got a text this morning from a good friend. And he said this to me. So it's not just like romantic love I'm talking about. It's even more so in that category. But my friend said to me today, he said, I hope that you receive half of the encouragement, at least half the encouragement today that you give me on a regular basis. If you do, you will be filled with encouragement today. I'm not saying that to, matter of fact, I'm, I'm complimenting him more than I am me. I hope you get what I'm saying here. What a game changer for my day. To look at my phone and see somebody that says, you're a great encouragement in my life, and, and I hope you get encouraged today, and I want to encourage you that you're pretty awesome. You mean so much to me. It's been studied, and people are, much higher inclined to write a complaint than they are a word of praise or appreciation. Unfortunately, I think that can creep into the home. You didn't get this done right. And that, and, oh my goodness, look at how, but how often do we say thank you 
come on, if, if you've been married more than 15 years, I don't care who you are or what you've done, you got to look at your spouse and go, thank you for putting up with me. Because we all are damaged goods. We've all got dents and bruises and and we, we come to church on saying we try to act like we got to how you doing? I'm great. How are you? Well, no, you're not. It's okay. You don't have to get too transparent. I'm okay with that. But you got to be thankful for their continual support. Pray together. Number two, create happiness for the other person. Don't seek it, but create it. Number three in today's message, resolve conflict. I know that when we go into a series like this, there's a whole bunch of you here that aren't married. And uh, there's a lot of you that have had marriages that were not ideal. I, I know that, and I'm aware of it. And I try to let it kind of control my words a little bit because I'm never trying to make you feel bad or trying to lash out or whatever. But the principles of relationships touches every person in the room, whether you're married or not. And if you want better relationships... You can't go down that pathway. The four things we talked about, they will destroy all of your relationships. But if you look at the other side of it and you'll be sacrificial in the way you approach other people, you'll be a connector, not, not a, a, an isolationist. And you'll, you'll connect and have fellowship and connection with them. If instead of trying to hide and, 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 and be deceitful, you'll be open and transparent. And instead of being angry, you'll forgive and love you'll have great relationships. I want everyone to stand here with me today. The most important relationship you'll ever have. If you guys with lights can just keep lights up all the time today. Don't bring them down at all. Just keep them as bright as you can keep them. If, if, if um, the greatest relationship you can ever have in your life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it comes through putting your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. You can't pick one or the other. If you pick him as your Lord, then he'll be your Savior. But, but let it be both, not either or. If he's your Savior, then you'll want to make him your Lord after all that he's done for you. The Bible says the way to experience the new birth that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, Paul says it this way, if you will believe in your heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. That's how it all happens. The result of those two things is life transformation. It's not merely going through some recipe or, or, or some formula, but those things bring life transformation. If you're here today and you're not right with God, very quickly, you can say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross in my place. I acknowledge you as my Lord. And the Bible says, you'll be saved. I believe you are who you said you are. I believe that you rose from the dead. I put my faith in you. You will be saved. That's the beginning. Then there's this journey of life called sanctification, holiness, and righteousness where you live the right path, the right life that leads to abundant joy. And if you need that today, I want to pray for you in just a moment. But the, the one thing I want to do, and, and I know it's going to be a little awkward for some people, and I apologize in advance. I get that. But if you're sitting by your spouse or 
if you're not, maybe move to where they are real quick. Um, I want to pray for families. I pray for marriages. Because here's the deal. The family is the foundation of the church. Family is the foundation of a community. It's the foundation of a, of, of a state and a nation. When families are strong, everything else is strong. When families are struggling, everything else struggles. And I want to pray that families in our church would have strength. I'm going to do a couple things, but real quick, I want to do that. I'm going to walk down here where Janet is, because I don't want to have, have her walk up the stairs. But I'm going to pray with her and pray for you. So you may not see me now, maybe you do or not, I don't know. But I want to pray right now for all of us. Would you take your spouse by the hand or to just somehow physically connect with them right now? Father, I thank you. Thank you, first of all, God, for Janet. Lord, for the, the great influence she has in my life. Lord, I do pray for blessing upon her as she becomes more like you every day. I thank you, God, for her maturity in Christ. I thank you, Lord, for her wisdom, for her kindness, for her patience. Lord, I thank you for her today and pray you would bless her. Lord, I pray for the families of our church, for the marriages, that they would be strong and secure. That they would be an example in their neighborhood, among their families, at a place of work. Lord, I know that in a group this size, there are some today who are struggling maybe. And I pray that you would pour out abundant grace upon them. Give divine wisdom. And Lord, I rebuke what the enemy would try to destroy. And I proclaim life and victory over every home represented here today. Lord, I know there are some who've been through difficult things in their past. And at this moment, the enemy would try to seize that and, and heap guilt upon them. But I thank you for your word, Jesus, that tells us, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Thank you for freedom. But Lord, I pray for blessing. I pray for goodness. I pray, Lord, that each family be made strong and healthy for the advancement of your kingdom and for the accomplishment of your will. Unite our hearts together that together we may advance your kingdom and accomplish your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Is there a song, Russell, you're going to sing now? You got one to sing or not? Yeah? I went long today. I'll do better next week. But I would just share my heart, and I hope it connected somewhere with you in the process.